0: You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, we are in Lent now, uh, a season leading up to, uh, to Easter. We had uh, Ash Wednesday, Wednesday night, and um, we're going to be looking at some different stories in the life of Jesus to lead us up to the cross, to lead us up to uh, his resurrection. And today we're in Matthew chapter 3. If you'd like to grab a Bible, you can um, flip there, and that's where we'll be, Matthew chapter 3. Um, we had the Esther series right before this, and um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the famous lines from Esther is where she is um, being told by Mordecai, you should go before the king, and she's saying, but I, if he doesn't raise his scepter, then I'll be killed, and he says, who knows if you weren't put in this time for such a time as this, Amen. and then we, we talked a little bit as a, as a body about um, we weren't born in the 5th century or the 16th century or the 1800s or anything like that. It is, we, we are here now and so we need to understand how do we live in such a time as this? How do we live in the time in which we find ourselves? And um, <clears throat> there, there's going to be over the next probably few months, you're going to see something that, is, um, that we've talked about to some degree, uh, but is really the, a real heartbeat of our leaders, our elders and pastors here at the church is to help equip God's people to have what we call a Christian worldview. Now, not we call it that. It is called a Christian worldview. Now, um, the, the concept here is this, is we live in, 20, we live in 2024, and there are uh, people that we interact with, and it's like we're, we're running a race together, and you go, I feel like we're, we're both human beings, we're both Americans, we're both 2024, and it feels like we're, we should be running a similar race, yet when you and I talk about maybe a hot-button topic of the day or some kind of issue... I look at you and go, how in the world can you possibly think that? And you look at me and go, how in the world could you possibly think that? And one of the reasons, in fact, I think the two biggest reasons why we, we start back here and then we start running our race and we go, how do we get so far apart? Is because as soon as the starting gun went off, the race for one group went this way and one group went this way. And so over time, you just start looking and going, we're just seeing the world different. And when we see the world different, when we have a different lens by which we interpret our day, then all of a sudden we are miles and miles apart. And I think the two biggest reasons, the two biggest changes way back here at the starting gun are in the next two stories that we're going to look at in the life of Jesus And it's interesting, they're very popular stories in the sense that people know them. I don't see them taught a whole lot today. I don't know if that's because, well, I assume everybody knows it. Um, But we're going to look at two very, very important events in the life of Jesus. And I think they're going to give the two biggest answers, at least that I see in our day, of what, what, what is way back here at the beginning, what's at the starting gun that has taken us where now all of a sudden it feels like we're just speaking two different languages. So the two stories are these. You just heard one of them read. The first one is the baptism of Jesus. It is in um, the first three Gospels. It's mentioned in the fourth Gospel as well. But the first three Gospels have the baptism of Jesus, and then the next event in the life of Jesus is um, what we'll look at next week, which I think answers question number two, which is the temptation of Jesus when he's out in the wilderness um, tempted by Satan. So we're going to explore this today to try and figure out what, is a, what does a Christian worldview look like? What is way back here that has given us this thing where all of a sudden now we're out there and we're talking, it seems like we're talking um, different languages. Um, <clears throat> so let's just recap very quickly the story. Uh, So you heard John the Baptist, you heard it read, he's a relative of Jesus, he's out preaching in the wilderness, he is a prophet that was appointed by God from birth to say, uh, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the one that is pointing to Jesus. There's a forerunner, and then he's gonna point to Jesus, and John is filling that role. He's got the weird diet, and he's got the goofy clothes. It feels real goofy to us. It's, It's looking like he is in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah had a lot of that in the Old Testament, a prophet. And so this looks like an odd guy in weird clothes out there just yelling. Really what's happening is he's been appointed by God as a prophet in the spirit of Elijah to declare that Jesus Christ has come. He is a fulfillment of prophecy, and his message, what you hear, is he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that you've been longing for, Old Testament believers, has now come. The kingdom of heaven is here. So interestingly, we have to figure out why is it that they're coming to go to John the baptizer out in the wilderness, and it is they are responding to his call to confess their sin and repent. It says in verse 11, it says, this is uh, Mark, Matthew 3, 11. It says, I baptize you. This is John speaking. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He's talking about Jesus. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Let me explain what that means. Um, in that day, you have, a, you have a, um, a, a rabbi or a teacher, and then you have his disciples who would literally walk behind him. Like if you saw them, it's like him and his entourage, like you would know who's the leader and who the followers are. And then they would often have other followers with them that were not Jewish followers. They were Gentile followers. And really, their only reason they were there is there were a few very, very menial tasks that were beneath even um, the, the, the Jews would not do them, even the ones who were following their teacher. And one of them was, as they're walking around on the dusty, dirty, gross road and his sandals just get caked with dirt and with mud, a Jew would not, they would do anything else, but they would not take the sandals, clean the sandals, clean the feet, and carry them if they were asked to. That was too demeaning. And so they would have um, non-Jewish, followers that that was their only job that was basically what the slaves would do and so when john says there's someone coming after me i am not worthy to to wash his sandals or to take his sandals or to carry his sandals what he's saying is this one who is coming after me is mightier than i he said and he says i'm not worthy to be his slave They would have understood that. He is esteeming the one who is coming after him in the highest. And it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's going, I got water. This guy's got the Holy Spirit and fire. And then verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So he's, you think what I'm doing is good. You think I've got a, I've got a following. I'm, out, I'm being John the Baptist. I'm out here in the wilderness and people are, are coming to me and I'm, I'm preaching and I'm proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Man, I've got nothing on this guy who's coming after me. He is, the, the, the kingdom is coming with this guy. I'm not even worthy to be this guy's servant. That's what he's just saying. And he, say, he's coming here for this baptism of repentance. Here's an odd next line. If this baptism, in verse 13, if the baptism is for forgiveness of sins and repentance, verse 13 is quite odd. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus came to be baptized. Remember the call, repent. Repent. Come and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. And then here comes Jesus to be baptized. Seems like Jesus doesn't need that. If you're confused by it, John wondered about it too. It says in verse 14, it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. John's confused by this too. The way it's phrased when it says John would have prevented him in, in the Greek, it's, um, it's called the imperfect tense. It's a, something that happened in the past, but it's ongoing. And so it's really like he's saying John kept on preventing him. Like Jesus was going, I need to be baptized. And John goes, no, 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 no. I need to be baptized. No, 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 no. And he's saying, why, w- why would I baptize you? You're the one that needs to baptize me. He's saying, you don't need this. So why was Jesus baptized? You ever thought, stopped and thought about that? Why was Jesus baptized? Baptism like this was kind of new in their day. The Jews had a lot of they had a lot of um, Jewish traditions that were like cleansing of the hands or the feet or the face. Um, they didn't really have this. You know, if you picture the Jordan, this idea of being immersed, like going under and having your entire body cleaned, as a picture of I, I need, I need all of me cleaned, not not just my hands, my feet, my face. I need, I need all of me cleaned. I am, I am broken and sinful to my core. I need all of me cleansed. This, this was kind of a, of a new thing. It's an admission that all of us is broken. But then here comes Jesus to be baptized, and I still kind of go, why in the world is Jesus coming to be baptized? This is what I need. This is what you need, is to say, I am broken apart from Jesus Christ. And so why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Well, um, over history, uh, people have guessed at this. And I'll give you the first one, and I'm going to be as clear as I can right at the outset I'm going to encourage you to reject this one in the highest. (laughs) However, it has been uh, throughout church history, and then some new thinkers even today, I was not even going to talk about it, but there's some new thinkers today that are starting to bring this back up. So this, this goes all the way back to the, the Gnostics, if you've heard that term, in the first century. There was one in particular named um, Serinthus, and I'll talk about him in just a second. Here's what they said. Why did Jesus need to come to be baptized? And they say, because Jesus was a sinner too. They say he was not God, he was just a man, and so he was in need of baptism as well. Now, one of the ways they get around this, because... Well, never mind, I'm going to be, I'm gonna try to be measured about all this. Uh, one, of the reason, one of the ways they get around this is Serenthus is especially would say, at Jesus' baptism, he took on his Christhood as well. Like he became divine at his baptism. And then he was divine and man for like three, three and a half years. And then at the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes back to just being a man again at that point. Okay, so that was, that was, this has come up over time, and you hear this even a little bit today if you read in these, you know, higher critical kind of circles, they'll say things like this, that, well, Jesus was just a guy, and then he was sort of God and man for a little bit, or maybe just God for a little bit, and then he went back to being just a man. Um, to go into the problems of this would take a long, long time. Let me just give you a couple. The, the basis of this is to say Jesus was basically a sinner, needed to come and get baptized. Um, Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Wow, that's comforting, and then at the end of the verse, it says, yet was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Then you have the problem with that position of saying, so he wasn't really eternally divine. And you have a problem with John's gospel. At the very beginning, he just says, in the be- well, you have a problem with most of the Bible, really. But you have John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. He was divine from the very beginning. John starting his gospel is like, hey, if you get nothing else, you need to know, Jesus is the eternal one. He is eternally God. What about when Jesus was born? And they called him Emmanuel, which means God with us at his birth. Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus, is, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this one is, that, was, that took me about three minutes to come up with that little list. It is wildly unbiblical, and the church has renounced it for centuries. However, I only bring it up because even today, people will kind of start to wonder, to try and make sense of, is that why Jesus came to be baptized? Not, not to mention, by the way, if... Um, the logic we have here, the problem that we have is if Jesus was sinful, then he's no longer worthy to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me. So it can't be that Jesus wasn't perfect. It can't be that he needed to repent. So why in the world did the perfect one, the only perfect one, come to the baptism for repentance and forgiveness of sins? Other people have said things like this. They said it was just cultural. It was kind of a, almost like an ordination for priests um, to, it was this initiatory rite that they would have And he went through that I don't think that makes sense um, The Gentiles had sort of a similar practice that they would do And so some have said maybe he's taking on this new thing Because the gospel's about to go to the Gentiles And so he's trying to identify with the people he's trying to reach uh, My favorite one is someone writes with a straight face That he got baptized because he was trying to please his mom <laughs> That mama said get baptized Okay mom I'm going to do that for you um, I don't think that's it. Uh, There's good news, in case you're wondering. And we sit there, and I leave you to just go and speculate and try and figure it out. Jesus actually tells them exactly why he is coming to get baptized. Because remember, he's going, and John the Baptist is going, why would I baptize you? And Jesus says, let me tell you. Verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Let me get baptized. And he says, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then it says he consented john consented to baptize him why did jesus get baptized he said it is fitting to do this to be baptized and the phrase is to fulfill all righteousness in other words for me to demonstrate my perfect righteousness i am going to do this so let me explain john is there as an appointed prophet of god and god requires it of his followers That's what Jesus just said. And so Jesus, to be perfect, to demonstrate his perfection, just said, I will do whatever it takes to demonstrate that if God commands it, I will do it in obedience to him. He does not need repentance. He does not need forgiveness. One commentator said this. He said, this is humility. He comes as a model for his followers after him. He consents to be counted among the ones he came to save. He came to say the right and righteous thing to do, to be obedient to my heavenly Father and to repent, to be baptized. Go and make disciples of all nations. We have every day as we walk out. Baptizing, it says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying this is what the people who want to please my heavenly Father do. If you're a worshiper of God, this is what he requires. I'm a worshiper of God, he says, and so he does it. It is a unique baptism. Lots of reasons it's unique you'll see here in just a minute, like the heavens didn't open at my baptism, a dove didn't descend, anything like that. Like We'll see that in just a minute, but I do want to just stop and make a point to say I think one of the things he's trying to declare is that baptism is not optional for Christians, that we are supposed to be baptized. And I just say this, not any guilt trip or anything. I just, as a pastor, want to say, don't be an unbaptized Christian. Follow the example of Jesus Christ who said, to fulfill all righteousness, I am going to do this. We're going to be baptizing in here, by the way, April 7th. April 7th, bright Sunday. So the Sunday after Easter. If you want to be a part of that, would you let us know? And we would love to talk to you. And if you're in the camp going, yeah, 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 I haven't, and now I'm embarrassed to do it, I would love to have that conversation. You will get zero guilt trip, by the way. I would also love to talk if someone's going, I would love to do that. However, if, you are, like, if you're introverted and you're going, the thought of standing up and more than like my immediate family and friends looking at me terrifies me. I would love to have that conversation because we do not just baptize extroverts, okay? So I'd love to help you with that. Okay. So what is Christ doing? Christ is saying, in order to have perfect righteousness, I'm going to demonstrate my perfect obedience. I am, going, I am doing what sinners ought to do. They ought to repent. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm modeling what to do, and I'm, I'm living a perfect life and perfect obedience to my heavenly Father so that I can demonstrate my righteousness so I can be the sacrifice for sin, So it's interesting, isn't it, that somebody says, well, is this happening because Jesus is sinful? And it's actually Jesus' reason is he goes, no, it's just the opposite. It's because I am living in perfect obedience to my heavenly Father. This is what those who worship the Father do. And Jesus says, and I worship him. So he's setting an example. So this is why I said the baptism's unique. Look what happens next. There's a visible and an audible thing. Verse 16. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, or the skies were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is not Um, a a vision like Ezekiel had a vision, or it's not a vision like John had a vision um, in the book of Revelation. This is an event that's happening, and he's describing the events. God the Father just spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son. By the way, this is one of the few examples in the Bible where we see explicitly the Trinity, our triune God, together. You have got the Son in the water, the Holy Spirit, descending on him like a dove, and you hear the audible voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So look at what's happening here. John the Baptist has said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm unworthy to tie his sandals, I'm unworthy to carry his sandals, he's mightier, he's not going to baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit He keeps coming to me and I keep saying, why are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. This is a prophet appointed by God to declare who Jesus is. Then you have nature, in a sense, uh, declaring who he is uniquely as the heavens just pull back, the sky pulls back. Then you have the Holy Spirit, this did not happen to anybody else's baptism, where it says the Spirit of God. You might go, well, metaphorically or something, great, Uh, but you didn't have the Spirit in the form of a dove or like a dove descend, like pointing out who is the center of attention in that moment. And then God declares Jesus to be his son. However, if all we see is God saying, this is my son, I think we miss perhaps the biggest point of this entire text. God is quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 2. It's one of the more quoted psalms in the New Testament. He's quoting Psalm 2, and he actually speaks this psalm, uh, in the psalms, he speaks it about um, whoever the king in Israel is. He says, this is my beloved son. And so if you start reading Psalm 2, it's a coronation psalm of declaring who the king is, and as you read that Psalm 2, you start to go, now wait a minute, this seems like it's nice, it's talking about the, the you know, king of Israel, but it sure seems to be going a lot farther than that as well, and it is. It is intentionally saying, the person on the throne, I am in unique relationship with him. But Psalm 2 keeps pointing forward to say, but there is one who is coming from the line of David who is going to be the good and better and final David. He is going to be the king that you need. And Jesus just took that. I mean, God just took that, God the Father, and at Jesus' baptism said, I'm applying it to my son. So now look at what happens. You've got the prophet, John the Baptist. Repent. Why? The king is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have nature recognizing its creator and king and just pulling back. You've got the the Holy Spirit descending. So it's unmistakable who we're talking about here. And then you have the heavenly father speaking from heaven and saying, this is the Davidic king. In other words, you have all four voices at Jesus' baptism publicly declaring, this is the king. That's the point of the baptism of Jesus. This is his coronation day. This is his public coronation. This is the declaration to everybody that Jesus Christ is king. This is the dividing line. This This is the starting gun way back here. Is Christ king or not? Because if he is, then your life is lived in obedience to him and under his authority. And if it's, if it's not, then all of a sudden you go, ah, oh, you kind of go over. And so what happens all of a sudden is we're talking to people and some people get so, and it, it can be frustrating. At the same time, I go, I know why we're speaking different languages, because you probably think I'm crazy that in America in 2024, I would say, I bend the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he calls the shots in my life. And you're, you're not there yet. And so I understand. Like, we see the world completely, completely differently. And if this is wrong back here, then all of a sudden, everything out here starts to fall apart. This is the issue back here. In fact, there's a really interesting passage Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus and his disciples, this is after the baptism, are walking, uh, they're walking into Jerusalem, and Jesus has been going around and, you know, doing Jesus thing, just casting out demons and healing people miraculously and all these things, and he's not hiding, it's very, very public, and then he, he gives this declaration, if you have faith, say to him out and move, and it'll move. He's walking in the, um, in the courts as though he has authority, and so you get this um, this. Uh, the chief priests, scribes, and elders make up a 70-person council of Jewish leaders in the day called the Sanhedrin. And they don't like this new upstart rabbi coming in as though he has authority. And so they go to confront Jesus. And they say to him, this is Mark 11, verse 28, they say to him, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? It's kind of like they're understanding. You're, you're doing all these things But let's go back for a minute. How do you have the authority to do this? You know, in that day, I could see him thinking like, we had to go through a big process, you know, and years and years of having followers and and we had these disciples to get to where we are and now here you are and you just sort of, you know, you cut in line, Jesus, is essentially what it looks like is happening. Not to mention Rome would have hated any hint of an insurrection. So they'd be, they're going to have Rome on their side if they need it, and they do later. And so Jesus brilliantly just says, tell you what, I'll answer your question, but first you have to answer one of mine. And in verse 30, look at what event he goes back to. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. John was widely regarded as a prophet from God. John was baptized. John baptized Jesus as well. And he knows if they say, if they say, yes, I believe in the baptism of John, then you got to believe in the ministry of John. And in the ministry of John, he had this whole event where Jesus Christ was publicly declared king. So, okay, well, we can't say that. So what if you say that it, it was John's baptism, it wasn't from God, so he's just a normal man. he's not a prophet. Well, that gets around the other thing, but really what we've got to deal with then is politics. Everybody likes John, and all the other Jews, all the other religious people, they think that he is from God, so we can't say that he was just a man either. So what do they do? If they affirm it, they are declaring the ministry of John, and they are declaring that Jesus Christ is king. That's where he gets his authority from so what do they do? They answer Jesus. We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And that's the conversation. If you don't care that I'm king... You're not gonna wanna talk about casting out demons. You're not gonna wanna talk about me being able to walk in the temple courts. You're not gonna be able to, we're not gonna be able to have all these conversations down here if you don't go back to what happened at the baptism of John. And then when I was baptized, Jesus is saying, when I was baptized and I was declared emphatically, publicly king. And so he says, we've gotta get back to the root issue. This is a problem we have in our culture today. And I would go so far as to say, perhaps even in our churches today is we have a kingship issue. The issues are not usually the problem. Who is king is usually the problem. Kind of manifests itself like this, at least these are my observations. Hey, in my freedom, can't I just live my life my way however I want? Jesus just kind of comes alongside me to enhance what it is that I already want to do in my life. That is not Christ as king, that is Christ as your best buddy and your best friend. We're missing the kingship aspect of it. Hey, can't my, can't my view of the church and spiritual disciplines and praying and things like that just be whatever works for me, whatever makes my life better? Jesus is not king. Jesus is just sort of a, a spiritual consultant whose advice you can take or leave. If he's king, he is the one we seek to Please. We say sometimes, like, if it works for me, if it makes me happy. But if Jesus is king, he's the one we want to make happy. He's the one we seek to please. Or I think perhaps the biggest one in our culture today, so hear this. Well, I can just keep on sinning because Jesus forgives. That is, Jesus is just my forgiver, but he's not my king. Jesus Christ is king. You see how it all comes back to, like if I go Christ is king, why would I go, oh good, I can just keep on sinning. Uh, There's a a kingship issue here. If he's really the one that I aim to please, if I'm not king but he is the king on the throne, my life looks completely different as I follow him. Jesus just said, I received authority at my baptism, I am the king, and if you don't understand that, we can talk about all these things out here, but eventually we're gonna have to get back to What is the kingship issue? Who is king and who is on the throne? You know, a few things for us. I think there's, this one's hard, some wisdom here. Because you probably have some people that all they want to talk about is all the issues way down here. And even if you were to resolve that, but you haven't resolved who is king of my heart and king of their heart, all you're going to do is go on, if if that ever gets resolved, you're just going to move on to issue number two sometimes, not all the time, please hear that, but sometimes there is wisdom in just not going there with people. It's just gonna divide. I had one of the most freeing, because I'm, I'm the guy, and I will, there are times I'm gonna stand, I'm never gonna say, what, yeah, that's right, what you're doing, or anything like that, if it's not, um, but there's times, like I remember one pastor was so freeing that there was a relationship in my life, and I just said, it was just beating me down. All he wants to talk about was this one thing, and the issue is we just see the world completely differently, and he said, you know, it, it's perfectly appropriate to say, Hey, can you and I just not go there? I don't think we're going to see the same way. And I was like, I can do that? And I did. And just to give the end of the story, the guy ended up giving his life to Christ. And we had a great relationship as a result of that. But we we just sort of took some of the secondary things that was all our relationship was becoming about, and we just sort of took them off the table. He, He knew enough to know where I was. I wasn't going to affirm it, but I knew, let's just quit talking about those for now. I thought it was good insight. A Christian worldview says Christ is king. Amen. It makes me think, too, as we're praying for, um, praying for our nation, or I'd even say in Colorado especially, <clears throat> yeah, we can pray about issues and that laws pass and things change and all that. But what if our prayer life looked more like pray that, we'll say our state, pray that we start to get a heart for your son, God. Pray that somehow we start to recognize Jesus as king. Pray that people who will exalt Jesus as king get on school boards, start running businesses, start getting into key sectors to start changing them from within. They get in positions of influence. In fact, maybe God's calling some of you to do that as well. But see what happens is, if we're just going just change this law or, do, or you know, advocate for this. All that's good, that can, or it can be good. But what if we changed our prayer life to say, God, would you make us humble before you? Let me give you one more thought, and I want to say this pastorally and sensitively. Let's say there's someone in your life that you love, and they are doing things that don't make sense to you. This could be um, someone here with an, I'll use the example, if you have an adult child, okay, but if that's not you, overlay your own kind of circumstances on it. Say somebody with an adult child and that child is partying, trying to find themselves, trying to do all the different worldly things that you can picture and as a parent, it can just just, you know, be like an anchor that never leaves. There's two possibilities here. One is, to pray, say, God, would you change this behavior in their life? This is bad for them. Out partying, bad decisions are made, they're running from you, they still see themselves as the king or queen of their own lives. What happens is, let's say he answers that prayer And that thing changes. And that can be good. And it's okay to pray about circumstance. I'm not saying don't. But if that changes, but there's still a root issue where they are their own king, they are their own queen of their own life, then that sin, that heart, may not run towards just like partying or whatever it was I was saying right here. It might just go over here. And then you're going, oh, now I need to pray about this. And then it's over, oh, now let me pray about this. And now let me pray about this. And if if God answers prayers and it just keeps moving over here, Let me give you a better prayer to pray. You could pray something like this. God, you know how my heart is broken for this person that I love. And I have this vision, Lord, and in your grace, if you would make something like this come to pass, I would be grateful. I picture my son, daughter, friend, whoever it is. Yeah, I don't want them partying anymore. I don't want to doing that, 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 running from you. But it's evening, and I picture them getting into bed. And before he or she gets in bed, they pause, and they get on their knees. They fold their hands, and they close their eyes, and they are on bended knee before you as king. That's a prayer.